It's a viral world after all. It's a viral world after all. And we have the immunity. The immunity is the imagination. The immunity is the music. The uh, immunity is the desire to go to other places, not physically, but spiritually, emotionally. And I have with me my spiritual partner, my creative partner, my emotional, the, the, the dam that stops all the elements of hopelessness from creeping in. His name? Yes, it is Bill Mesnick. Yo, yo, yo. Yo, yo, yo. The DMX of, uh, <laughs> of La Crescenta, California. And I am the uh, BS of Port St. Lucie, Florida. And ladies and gentlemen. Grandmaster Flash. Grandmaster Flash. And we are Bills in California. I'm in Florida. And once again, another 3,000 mile expedition for your listening pleasure. And you know, Bill, the thing about it is the whole world, the whole world's going crazy. And you know, it's, it's going, going through. It's going through. You, you got me. You got me. Okay. All right. Is that where you were going? Of course. Where else? where I'd be going. We know we have to go somewhere, so we might as well go in the same place at the same time. Bill's selection for this episode, and this is what you are listening to, put on a stack of 45s. <coughs> Pardon me, but it's COVID-62. Uh, this a is glass the, of water. I do have water. Water doesn't seem to yeah, help. Take any. a little sip. Bill, water doesn't seem to help any longer. Uh-oh. Hydrate. Uh, all right, let's hydrate. So Bill goes, okay, I want to do Bowie, and I want to do ch- 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 Changes. Little, yeah, did I, little did I know he was exercising a bit of a, of a mental uh, deficiency when the chicha. But Changes. So tell me, Bill, of all the Bowie recordings, of all of the, and I've been going through the, the uh, massive array of documentation regarding this particular recording as you do you do you do your due diligence well uh, because, you know why because a mind is a terrible thing to waste and i have to know i am more inquisitive than the average person which makes me a pain in the ass most of the time but brain fog has not you haven't missed a step i haven't well i'm, I'm missing many steps but that's another story so changes, of course, is from the. You asked me why. Well, it's, a, it's from the 1971 album Hunky Dory. What was the flip side of changes, Bill? Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol looks a scream. Hang him on my wall. Andy Warhol, silver scream, can't tell them apart at all. Okay, tell me why changes is okay. Changes, uh, I think 1971, 1972, that period there was a very fecund time for uh, Davy Jones, uh, uh, who we all know as as David Bowie. He wrote three dozen songs coming back after a U.S. promotional tour, which became the basis of two albums, Hunky Dory, and the groundbreaking earth-shifting Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Now, that record, I wouldn't say changed my life, but it, you know, we've discussed it before. 
you know, this is where I started to uh, question my sexuality because David Bowie was so um, androgynous. And um, in, on the cover of Hunky Dory, he looks like Marlena Dietrich, the way he's photographed, uh, that portrait. But the sound that he started to find and the way, you know, changes is kind of like I've been reading as well. And people talk about changes as a kind of a planting his flag, looking in the mirror, saying, okay, I he he had a pathological fear of repeating himself. And he tried all these different uh, personae and he finally hit upon something that, you know, paid di huge dividends for him. And it's an anthem. And um, well, it's and, uh, it's considered more than an anthem. It's considered a manifesto. Uh, biographers yes. have judged this as his uh, um, attempting to illustrate his entire career up to that point. Right. Um, and I also think that without Rick Wakeman's piano playing, you have a whole different uh, incarnation of this tale being... Uh, that was a great lineup, and uh, Rick Wakeman on the keyboards was substantial. So, Changes is, is... It's the final song, also, he performed on stage before he died. That, that yeah, he, he kept he kept bringing it back, reissuing it, and bringing it back, and it, it, it did stay with him his whole life. Interesting, though, that the song is um, one of those, well, it's it's not covered dr dynamically by a lot of artists. It's been covered by Butterfly Boucher, and uh, it's in the film Shrek 2, but it's not really one of those songs that has gotten... Uh, coverage over the course. Well, of it's a hard, years. hard song to cover. It, it goes into three different time signatures, and um, it's 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 very um, it's hard to uh, to I think uh, repeat. Yeah, I would think it would be a challenge the same way Bohemian Rhapsody would have been a challenge. But then again, you, once again, you have two iconic figures with two iconic recordings that are probably literally uncoverable uh, because you can't do justice to Freddie Mercury's um, vocal nor the arrangement and on changes you cannot possibly as you say you you can't follow these changes unless you have a path that is so clearly artistically uh, paved that it's going to make sense to, to a listener the chorus is indelible and of course that stuttering ch 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 changes which a lot of people think is an homage to uh, my generation um the who's my generation but the the song pretty much didn't set the world on fire only made up to six to 66 um when it was first released but then it was reissued later as a b-side to um space oddity this was in 1975 and then it became number one yeah, this it had a long path to its um, definition as his definitive work. Uh, by by many, I personally don't consider it his definitive work, but I understand why it is viewed. It's, well, he did so many uh, 
so-called definitive works and his his persona I kept changing um but this time period where he came up with this and Ziggy Stardust and Ziggy Stardust made all the difference uh yeah yeah the same way Sinatra's my way made all the difference to Sinatra And now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my way And it's been chronicled, yeah. it's been chronicled that uh, Changes was a response to Sinatra's My Way. Yeah, talk about that. I, I, I read that too, and I, I think you being the Sinatra expert can explicate that a little better than I could. Well, I think that what is is being stated in two different generational uh, uh, elements is the ideal of, in Bowie's case, having being, how old was Bowie when he recorded Changes? This is 1971. So how old do you believe he was? I don't have the birth date in front of me. Do you have no, I don't. But I find it very interesting that it would be uh, noted with a man who had already retired uh, and had <laughs> had done just about everything in show business he could have done when Bowie's career was in reality just starting. Uh, so I've heard it I've heard it detailed in a few ways. But I think that what Bowie was saying is that regardless of the reception that he is going to receive for the, um, the ambiguities that he presents and the distinct personas that he projects, he is going to continue to do this in the fashion that he deems best regardless of consequences until the end. I see. I see. Yes. Well, a man named David Buckley wrote that uh, he was exploring themes of identity and the mutability of character. And um, I see what you're saying. Sinatra goes, for better or for worse, I did it my way. It's He's talking about his sense of self and um, what he had to do to um, prevail. And Bowie's somewhat signaling the same idea. Yeah, even though he hasn't had the opportunity to live the life that could uh, present the proof of such uh, a trail being followed, wherein Sinatra had the proof on the table, documented. And when he states, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, a few to mention. Uh, We don't know other than through the music of David Bowie, how truthful that statement was at the end of his life. Um, yeah, well, he says, I, I turned myself to face me, but I never 
caught a glimpse how the others see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. You know, I mean, I think he's sort of assessing that, yes, I have not been able to land on anything successfully, but I'm going to keep shifting. And he, 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 right, he's going to, he's going to go through this process of metamorphosis, regardless of what it, uh, regardless of what it brings. Which he never stopped doing his whole life and career. And I do believe that Sinatra, of course, in, in, in comparing as the songs have been compared, um, had many doubts. He had many conflicts. And toward the end, as he lost his uh, ability to to think in the uh, bona fide, tough guy way, it became, we become vulnerable. And I think Bowie suffered that same vulnerability at the end, although attempted to stoically, like Frank, argue that this is really not happening and uh, doesn't want you to well, see what, it. Yeah, what, what, you know, you talked about my desire to keep working. Um, Black Star, wow. I mean, working on Black Star and the way it was released, you know, right around the time of his death and just sort of reflecting upon what comes after. I mean, it just never stopped. He never stopped. Yeah, yeah. And But he was also much more, you know, once again, we have a generational issue. So how he saw eternity and how Sinatra saw eternity or how the, the veterans of World War II saw eternity, you know, this is all conjecture other than through the lens of the art that's being presented to us which oh, is absolutely yeah absolutely but the, the lines uh, in black star where he talks about look up i'm i'm a star you know it, it, that's eternity right the the endless vastness of space yes but i think he's also he also was was uh prone to wishing to be grounded more which is why i find heroes to be the most significant uh, Boeing recording. It's the one effort that symbolizes a reality that goes beyond and transcends. wildest fantasies and imagination it is well i love i love uh, all the work with you know and the german period and the heroes was yeah it asked monolithic yeah monolithic and it asks a multitude of questions but uh it, it basically stays within the stratosphere where in ziggy stardust travels we believe to universes 
unknown and uh, still unknown. Uh, and as I believe I mentioned to you, it also is a grounding piece of work because late in her career, Nico um, performing as an active junkie would tour, and it was a signature piece in her set. affected me deeply seeing this woman um, proclaim, making this proclamation. So there's only two people that, and that song's been covered uh, numerous times, yeah. but for sure. me, the Nico performance is the most significant. Um, so of course we have the stutter, the ch-ch-ch-choo, and at uh, the beginning of the record, and it was compared to the who, specifically that uh, D- David grabbed it from my generation. People try to put us I mentioned that before, and uh, it makes perfect sense. Well, the hope I die before I get old. Do you think that there's a there's a <laughs> there there's this poetic invitation as just within the stutter that also indicates some of the lyrics that uh, that Townsend and Daltrey uh, pontificated upon. Absolutely, and in uh, in uh, Ziggy Stardust, the opening tune is Five Years, and Bowie's talking about the apocalypse. Yes, yes, yes. So he had a <laughs> sense of uh, impending doom from the beginning. Um, yeah, it, it, there, there are also com- comparisons to times they are changing. Um, b- because there seems to be a t- teenage angst that is in full view with this particular recording. And of course, when Dylan proclaims, uh, your kids are beyond your comprehension, you're, you can't control them, you know, you, this is the way it's going to be. They're going to go their, their way. I love, I love, oh, you pretty things. Yeah, don't you know you're driving your mamas and papas insane? Got to make way for the homo superior. <laughs> the homo superior. The yeah. homo superior. Well, in 75, RCA did release changes along with the, the uh, Ziggy outtake Velvet Goldmine as a B-side of the UK reissue of Space Oddity and that became David's first UK number one single. Number one. Number numero uno. The critical reception to this was good. 
it was good, but it was not anti. It was not seen as a reflection of what it would potentially become. That's often the case. Well, as is often the case with 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 so many things. I'm watching this uh, HBO Max series called Music Box. They've got a great episode on Ro- uh, Robert Stigwood, and Stigwood saw things well into the future and brought us the ability to. Uh, hear a movie before we actually see the movie. The release of Saturday Night Fever's soundtrack prior to the release of the film is the type of genius that no one believed would be possible. And I think it's these implications. I I don't believe Bowie had that type of of uh, of instinct. I think his instincts were of the moment whether it be the selection of, of Stevie Ray Vaughan to join him on tour or whether it be the set changes that he went through so dramatically in the mid-70s uh, and into the uh, 80s. He, well, he was a theater student. He was, and, yes, uh, you yes, know, yes. Uh, He was, uh, who, who was the mime that he studied with? I still Lindsay, go, Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay Kemp, correct, correct. And you can see the... You can see, and in the silence, you can hear these ramifications. If you had the, if you had the uh, opportunity to have seen him live during this period, um, that's another issue too. A lot of people did not get to see what he was, uh, what he was creating. And yeah, I saw I saw the Thin White Duke on stage. So you, so you had an opportunity to see him at work during yeah. a period where he was still primal. Oh, yeah, those sets were gigantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's also important um, within, the, within the realm of his career to have gotten to see him live during these incarnations, these characterizations in this theater that that he uh, single-handedly invented in the world of rock and roll. Um, and I don't think he's given enough credit for that either. Uh, I don't know if you have Jesus Christ Superstar without Ziggy Stardust. Uh, there were a couple of people doing it, right? Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah, but they were it. doing it. But see, Alice Cooper I always considered, considered to be more of a novelty I never can, you know, Bowie was existential. Bowie was... Sure, I mean, yeah, I guess I I shouldn't compare the two. I'm 18 and I don't know what I want. (laughs) It's a far cry. You know, when he he guillotined himself on stage. Yes, exactly. He was a theater man. Yeah, or or Ozzy Osbourne's idea of theater, which is biting off the head of a pigeon. You know, I mean, everybody's got... But the class and the dignity with which and the meticulous nature of the dress of the uh sets as you had stated this yeah. is this is theater in combination with rock and roll meatloaf attempted to do something like that with bad out of hell but uh although it sold a lot of copies it didn't come near the uh the arc that david bowie had built yeah i forget which song it was but at one point this boxing ring came down and he got into the ring with boxing gloves and he was doing some song um, in a simulated boxing match. 
Have you seen the Ziggy Stardust motion picture, which came out in 1983? No, I have not. Okay. Have you? Yeah, I mean, a long time ago. But, um, it, you know, it's a far cry from the original uh, dynamic. And um, that's why I'm saying I, I think that having seen him at that particular time could have been a revelation for, for many. But he was a revelation for many without anyone ever seeing him live. So uh, he covered all the bases just out of uh, his poetic and creative intentions and uh they yes and as we and as we said when we were planning this the the career is so vast and so uh so specific in many areas that we're only focusing on ch ch changes yeah because if we go into the you know but there's there you have to at times drift off into yeah, of the into the magnitude of what was created it's so big. here. It's, it's so big. Yeah, it's, it would I be apologize. Like, it would be like talking about Bob Dylan and just trying to choose one song in order to identify Well, we did that, him. right? We did uh, Positively Fourth Street. Yeah, but that still doesn't signify Dylan as what Dylan no. has still How do you encompass become. Dylan? Well, if you read recent articles regarding his 80th birthday, you know, a lot of people feel as you had the opportunity to see him live, he turns his back on the audience. That's something you could never have expected David Bowie to ever do. And that's being on a bill with Merle Haggard. So uh, you, you never got answers from uh, Bob Dylan. I believe that in the incongruous nature of it all, David Bowie had some answers to some very significant questions. I was certainly hanging on every word for a while. Obviously, my friend. The personnel, very important for, for this particular recording. David Bowie, Rick Mick Ronson, I don't think given enough credit for his guitar and his ability to arrange strings. Um, Mick Ronson, very important partner for David Bowie in those years. Yes, yes, as was the bassist Trevor Boulder and Mick Woodmancy. The percussion, Woody, Woody, and uh, we will not forget quickly the contributions that Rick Wakeman made to uh, the orchestrations of the music that we grew up with. Many of the orchestrations, some have rejected his work as being pompous and overzealous, uh, but I'll leave those judgments to be made by those who chronicle these issues. Uh, who will chronicle these issues eternally. And one of the things we try to do here is uh, bring you things that I think will be listened to long after we are gone and uh, be discussed. And for your edification, if you are not familiar with this piece, then uh, get ready. And if you are familiar, let's go through some more uh, ch 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 changes. David Bowie. And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste 
was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse Of how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strange Ch-ch-changes Don't wanna be a richer man Yes, my friend, and it does. I like the way you. I like the way you cue up the record. You like the way I do that? I just, yeah, because I got to. Well, your, you, voice, your voice gets David Bowie. Well, I have to get into that AM. <laughs> then, well, it's more FM. Allison Steele, the Nightbird, or Roscoe when Roscoe, W yes. in New York when WNEW FM started Scott Muni. When they Scott Muni. Scott, Scott Muni, and when all of these disc jockeys converged to create this language that was spoken between the hours of 10 p.m. to 6 o'clock in the morning, I, of course, not really caring much about going to school, would be spending my time between AM, the AM dial and the FM dial. And I found this kind of delivery to be very... Poignant, and of course, Alison Steele would read poetry, and it, it was it, it took you to another dimension. Along, I with, loved Alison Steele. 
along with WBAI, which gave you Bob Fasty post politics. You could tune in, listen to Phil Oaks drop in as a guest. And then they had WMCA with Dandy Dan Daniels, and you had everybody wondering if Murray the K was going to be able to stay at WABC for just a little while longer if he got the fifth Beatle. You have to understand that this is number one for the sixth week in a row. I think I grew up wanting, that, those are the voices that I heard in my head constantly. Now it's your turn. And now it's my turn. Now it's my turn to become that voice once again. And speaking of voices, Mr. Mesnick has a voice that he resonates over the uh, Dig This Airwaves weekly with a little thing called, uh, we like to call Captain Billy's Magic 8-Ball. What Bill does, you see, is Bill lives with 8-track recordings all over his domain. And a couple of times a week he goes through the archive and he pulls one down and he takes a look and he reflects upon the meaning and the uh, substance of this particular recording. And so we offer to you Bill's narrative, his insights, and believe me, some of them are quite coming strictly from me. You make your own decision, and Bill, I know you're a modest man, but I believe that some of your insights are are wonderfully uh, poetic and uh, go to places that others do not go. And we Thank give, you, my friend. It is very true. And we give you this insight and then play the entire recording for you, the entire album in high definition. So this week you can anticipate Elvis Costello's Get Happy. And uh, that's a good one. It's going to be a good one. And we have a number of surprises coming. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to ruin it for you. But, uh, you know, a tramp will be shining shortly. What, you know. That's all I'm going to say. So, my friend, I thank you for this expedition into the world of uh, David Bowie and the changes that he represented. And that particular recording, which, of course, was uh, dynamic and iconic and obviously a real life changer for you, as was his his innovation and his, uh, his life and career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure, and we hope it has been a pleasure for you, the listener. On this episode of Put on a Stack of 45s, we shall retain. Bye-bye. Stack of 45s. Stack of 45s.